Well, I want to thank you for being here, and uh, I'm excited about this series. It's a little bit different. Uh, let, me let, let me let you in just for a moment into a pastor's life. I know, boring, works a half a day a week. I get it. All your jokes, I've heard them a hundred times. I work a full day a week, because I work Saturday evening and Sunday morning. Kind of adds up. But let me let you in on the life of a pastor. When you preach... Christmas every year, you begin to really come around the season of Christ's birth and you begin to pray, Lord, you know, I, I've, I've preached this several years in a row and I'm not sure how to make this fresh. Not that the word of God needs to be made fresh. It's living and active, amen? amen. But when you're preaching it over and over and over, sometimes the pastor needs to make it fresh to be able to get really excited about it. So I'm excited about the angle that we're taking, and I wanna open up with kind of reintroducing you to it. Now, if you missed last week, I would encourage you, you probably should go back and hear it again, or hear it for the first time. That will help you understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. The Christian life is an adventure. If you haven't figured that out yet, you're going to. And when you get around Christmas time, the Advent season, which churches the world over begun last weekend, when you get into the Christmas Advent season, it reminds us of this adventure. But what do I mean by adventure? Now, I want you to look at the word Advent for a moment. I'm reminding you what we covered last week. It's a word that means the arrival of a notable person, place, or thing, or event. And the Christmas Advent is the celebration of the coming or the arrival of Jesus as a baby boy. Now, so far, this is a very dull and dreary sermon. I get that. But let me tell you what I found so interesting about the word adventure. Look at the word adventure. Advent is the root. So what does adventure mean? It means something that is about to happen. So we're in a sermon series. We began it last week. It will culminate the week before Christmas Eve. It's a four-week series. And we're looking at four adventures, all brought about by angelic announcements or visits. And it prepared them, those angelic visits, prepared the people who heard them, received them, for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's Advent. Adventure. Something was about to happen in the world. And in each one of the four that we're going to look at, we're going to see many ways that our adventure, yours and mine, really are not that different from theirs. In fact, each one of these sermons, I'm going to show you that the adventure that the angel was calling them to is very similar, if not the same, as the adventure that he's calling us to. You know, there's going to be another Advent. You got you to know that. This is really the, one of the linchpins of this message, this series. There's going to be another Advent. What does Advent mean? The coming of a notable person, event, or thing. There's another Advent about to come. We call it the second coming of Christ. It's all through the Bible. He's coming back again. Amen? And there's no better time than Christmas... To remember and focus on our adventure as we prepare the world to receive his return. So last week we looked at Zechariah. He was a priest. 
He was in chapter 1 of Luke as well. Today, we're still in chapter 1 of Luke. We're going to look at a young Jewish girl that you're probably all familiar with. Her name is Mary. Now, let's look together, all right? Let's get your Bibles open. There's a lot of things in here you're going to need to be seeing as I preach through this. So let's start at verse 26. In the sixth month, the, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So four things I want to teach you, maybe remind you. Here's the first. This is huge, and it's incredibly elusive. God's adventures are for humble people. God's adventures are for humble people. People. You remember the word adventure means something is about to happen. You remember Advent, the coming of a notable person, thing, or event. All right? So God's adventures that he gives to his people, they are for those who are humble. Now, all four of these, beginning last week with Zechariah, continuing today, and on for the next two weekends, all four of them, all four messages, are going to center on people who had nothing special about themselves, and that is the way God works. So you ready? Let's get on a level playing field for a moment. There is absolutely, and please don't say amen to this, you'll understand why in a minute. There's absolutely nothing spectacular about me. There's truly not. I'm average in everything. I always have been my entire life. It's amazing. I know how I'm going to score on something. It will be average. That's just me. Probably not a lot of people who are superstars in this congregation. Now, if you think you are a superstar, there might be some reorientation and some recalibration in your mind that you need to know. Now, watch how this unfolds, and you'll understand why I'm saying this. The greatest event in the history of humanity, you ready? Began with the humblest of people. We looked at a country priest named Zechariah. There was nothing notable about him. Nobody had ever heard of him before, not in the pages of Scripture. He hadn't done anything that God said, oh, well, you're a good candidate for me to give a baby named John the Baptist who will prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus because you do so well in your priestly service. I'm going to pick you. None of that is true. Zechariah was a normal, average country priest. And it's in the sixth month of his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy that God now sends Gabriel the same angel he sent to Zechariah. We saw him last week. He's going to send him now to a town in Galilee. Now, listen to this. This is really interesting, at least to me. If you're a Jewish person living in first century Israel, Gabriel's visit to Galilee was in itself incredibly surprising. The world at that time, now you need to know this, and a lot of us really, this might be something new for you. The world at this time, first century, when Jesus was born, it was filled with prejudice. Listen, if you think right now that America is divided with racism and prejudice, I'm going to tell you something. The more you study Israel, the more you study the Roman Empire, you will become so persuaded we are nothing compared to them. The world was filled with prejudice. 
Israel was certainly no exception. Galilee is up north. You get the land of Israel, you've got Galilee, the region of Galilee, and then you've got Samaria in the middle. Those are the half-Jews that the Jews can't stand. They can't stand the Jews. And then you've got the lower part of Israel. That's the southern part. That's Judea, where Jerusalem is. We're we're looking at Galilee. That's up north. And you know what's incredible about up north in Galilee? It's filled with Gentile people. They live there almost as much as the Jewish people. It's considered the mongrel, mixed breed section of Israel. Gentiles living right among the Jews. Now, the southern region of Jews, the devout, they were considered the purebred. They looked at the Galilean Jews as being dirty Jews, impure Jews. They looked uh, with disdain on their northern liberal brothers. The conservative devout Jew, that's the southern one. The liberal progressive, that's the northern. And they didn't really like each other. There wasn't a lot of respect. In fact, Nathaniel, when Jesus first began to go public in his ministry, Nathaniel had this to say about Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the southern Jew. That was Nathaniel. That's their view of the northern Jew. Nazareth was a little town southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And it was close to absolutely no trade routes. No major roads went through it. No Jewish cultural centers were in there. Living there in this, this little town of maybe 300 people was a girl named Mary, a Jewish girl, very likely, you ready? This might surprise you, very likely between 12 and 14 years old. How do I know that? Well, look at two things. She was a virgin. That means to some of you older people, she never had sex. Didn't know if I had to explain that. And then she's, she's betrothed. You know what betrothed means, right? Well, here's what it means. Jewish girls were usually engaged. Oh, this is shocking. Girls, don't go home and tell your parents that you're going to go get married if you're 12 and 13, because that's when Jewish girls were engaged. 12 to 13 years old. Can you imagine that? Ah, as a father of a young girl, of a daughter, I don't even want to think about this. I, would, I don't even want to tell you what I would do to the man. And when they got engaged, listen, 12 to 13 years old, they were engaged for one year. That's called the betrothal period. Marriage was a contract, and it was arranged by the parents. I love this part. I believe we ought to bring that back. Oh, the things that I could do with a lot of you. Andy, man, I tell you, he's 11 years old, but he is handsome. And there's a couple mid-20s here I think would great, greatly be good wives for him. I'll come talk to you afterwards. <laughs> Marriage was a contract. It was arranged by parents, and only death or divorce could sever this contract. So listen, this is engagement. It's called betrothal. If death did happen to the guy during the betrothal, then the girl would be considered a widow, and she would be blessed with benevolence in Israel. During the year, their one year, the girl was to prove her faithfulness, prove her purity, and the husband, usually a couple years older, was to get a home prepared for his bride-to-be. Now, this is a little bit different than American weddings and engagements, right? 
The year would culminate in a Jewish wedding. It lasted seven days, after which they began their life together and then consummated their marriage. Now, here we go. Mary was betrothed to Joseph. They're in their one-year period. She's between 12 and 14, almost certainly. And Joseph, her betrothed, is a descendant of the Old Testament king of Israel, David. This is a very good bloodline. By the way, Mary is also descended from David. Both of them are. And though she too was a descendant of David, listen to this, this is my whole point, there was absolutely nothing special about her that made her stand out in a crowd. Nothing. Now, before I keep going on point number one, and I'm not going to be on it for too much longer, let, let's, get, let's get our bearings for a minute. Don't you ever feel like I do? God, how would you ever use me for anything good? I make so many mistakes. Do you not ever feel that you're too weak? You just don't know enough of the Bible. You're just not mature enough in the faith. You're just not walking close enough to God to really be used by him. Haven't you ever struggled with that feeling? Here's the great encouragement about Mary. When God calls you to an adventure to prepare the world for his return, he's looking for humble people. In fact, there is nothing notable about Mary. She was a no-name girl in a no-visit town in the middle of nowhere. In fact, later in the chapter, look at verse 46. She writes, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the, and get this phraseology, the humble estate of his servant. Now, the word estate in Webster's Dictionary means the net worth of a person at any point when you're alive or dead. It's your net worth. Mary's attitude was that she had no net worth in God's eyes to warrant God visiting her with an angel, giving her the adventure that she was about to be on. That's how she viewed herself. Now, the world would say, well, that's low self-esteem, and we've got to correct it. So you get like the one parent that I saw last week, which was absolutely beautiful, takes his little girl and sets her up in the bathroom vanity, and they both look in the mirror, and she repeats after him, I am terrific, I am great, I am beautiful, I have worth, I will not be disrespected. Now, we would think, well, that's really beautiful. And I'm watching her compass needle learn to settle on herself, and she'll grow up as an adult with the same heading. I'm important, more important than God, more important than other people. Well, listen, it's not about low self-esteem that Mary had. She had a very accurate self-regard. Do you understand the difference? Listen, self-esteem is the value you put on yourself. And if your value that you put on yourself is artificially contrived, number one example, because I'm really good at something, well, what do you do when you're no longer very good at it? Or if it's artificially contrived, well, people tell me I'm beautiful and that I'm talented and that I'm good at this. Well, what when you're not so beautiful? Maybe your talents erode or you just really aren't that talented. Where's your value then? Your value must be determined by God's view of you. 
And when your value, your regard is on his view of you, all of a sudden it creates a humility in you, a humility in me that says, I haven't earned this. I don't deserve this, yet God has placed his love on me. God has placed his affection on me, and he's calling me into, into an adventure, one that he will help me live. So Christian, do you see yourself having little to offer God? Well, remember what Paul wrote. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I'm going to say something that seems so outlandish. There's really not a lot of superstars in God's church. Because superstars grab the glory. And God is jealous for the glory. God is jealous for the spotlight. Why would he want anybody else to get the glory rather than him? That's called idolatry. God would be a worshiper of us. To give the spotlight to glory, the weight, the doxa, the word in the New Testament, to anybody other than God would mean that God finds us more notable than himself. And we will find satisfaction in something less than him. That's why he's jealous for it. He wants us to put our love on him, to find our satisfaction in him. He's not egocentric. He's not self-centric. He's not arrogant and proud. He came out of heaven, took the form of a baby, died on the cross because he loves us. And he's teaching us, find your worth, your self-regard, and your self-esteem in him. Because he loves you more than anybody ever will. It's the humble. Be encouraged. Stay humble. Live the life of what Mary says, his servant. Well, then we get to number two, point number two. God's adventures come with a sense of his favor. Now, I know you like this. I know you, you understand this. If you have grown up under parents, which I'm assuming most of us have, then you understand when your mom and your dad are proud of you, when they have their favor upon you, Maybe some of you understand what it's like to never be able to get your father or your mother to have their favor put on you. Well, let's learn what Mary understood. And he came to her, verse 28, and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what, what sort of greeting this might be. Now, many of, you, many of you have come to our church having grown up in a Catholic church. I talk to a lot of you. And if so, then you're familiar with the Catholic view of immaculate conception. By the way, that was created in 1864 by, by Pope Pius IX. And what it is, the immaculate conception, it's the doctrine that Mary was preserved. Now listen, you've got to get this. Mary was preserved by God's grace or in God's grace, preserved and protected from original sin. So she was born having no sinful taint. Or in other words, she was born perfectly holy and never once in all of her life did she sin. That's the view of the Immaculate Conception. She's been called the God-bearer, 
The second Eve, the Queen of Heaven, the Madonna, the Notre Dame, the Woman for All Seasons. This is, these are all the titles, or even more than this, that have been given to Mary. She's sung about in choirs. She's portrayed in art, by the way, more than any other woman in history. Even more than Kim Kardashian. She's been called the Virgin of Guadalupe. She symbolizes the entire body and soul of Mexico. So what gave rise, now listen, what gave rise to this seriously mistaken understanding of the greeting of Gabriel? Well, the Ave Maria, or the Hail Mary prayer, starts this way. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Hail means to greet with enthusiastic approval or to summon by calling. That's what the word hail means. And the false premise of the whole Hail Mary prayer, which is repeated over and over and over by Catholics, the false premise is the belief that Mary, this is amazing, she's called the co-redemptrix, Mary has been granted or been given the fullness of grace so that she can bestow it on others. She gives grace before Jesus does. So if you want grace from God, you pray to Mary, the co the co-redemptrix, and she, along with Jesus, bestows grace on you. That's the entire understanding behind the Immaculate Conception. Now, some of us make a mistake because of how it's heretically abused in some religions. We do the opposite to Mary, and both positions are wrong. You cannot lower her below that which Scripture says. So here we go. Gabriel says to her, greeting. That's the common Greek word. That's shalom for saying hello. It's the Hebrew word, uh, the Greek version translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Oh, favored one. Now you hear, now look at your text. This is amazing. Greetings, oh, favored one. It's Gabriel's assurance that Mary has found favor in God's sight. Not earned it, found it. The Lord is with you. He's promising her that God is going to give her the help that she needs to do the task that he's about to give her. The Lord is with you. Now listen, billions and billions of women have lived on this planet. Yet Mary was the only one chosen to carry the Christ child and raise him. And knowing God's favor, listen, knowing God's favor, Christian brother and sister, that's the great safety net. That's the airbag. That's the bubble suit for Christian living. It's how you overcome fear and how you do amazing things for God. Take extraordinary risks. To know that God has set his favor on you Simply because he has chosen to do so is empowering, it is liberating, it's freeing, it's fear conquering. Which is where Paul was going in Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, if you've not memorized that verse, can I encourage you? Pretty easy. It almost flows rhythmically. Can you memorize this? Because God's going to come to you, brother and sister, like he has come to me more than once, and he's going to say, here, I want you to do this. Now, did God speak audibly and tell me that? No. 
Did he impress that in my mind? At certain twice in my life that I know he's done that. It was irrefutable. But has he used people to, to guide me? Has he through his word counseled me? Here's what I want you to do. Has he by his spirit impressed me? Yes. And when he does, the very thing you need to know is God's favor is upon you and he will give you everything you need to do everything he's going to ask you to do. But look at her response. Verse 29, she was greatly troubled. Who wouldn't be? By the way, do you know that there are two angels in the Bible that are given names? Hark is not one of them. Gabriel and Michael. Michael's the war angel. Gabriel is the messenger angel. Here is Gabriel who is standing at the throne of God, and God sends him. But she was greatly troubled, verse 29, at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be, ladies and men. But ladies, look at this. The phrase, greatly troubled, it occurs only here in the entire Bible. It describes something that is thoroughly stirred up and confusing. Do you see what that means? It's not like the troubled with Zechariah. He was terrified. This troubled means something is stirred up and she is confused. But her response, look what her, her response is. She is trying to discern. Do you know what she's doing? She's putting her mind in control of her emotions. This is a godly, humble young girl. And ladies, you can be like this. Men, we can be like this. You don't need to let your emotions rule. And when they do, your train almost always is going to derail. Your mind must drive your emotions. And she's trying to discern. She's trying to understand the meaning of Gabriel's greeting. In fact, the tense is she keeps meditating on this, trying to seek understanding. She's a thinker, even as a young girl, taking her captive her mind. But I love what Gabriel does. I, I do want to meet him, and I, I know I will one day, because look at one, verse 30. He's incredibly sensitive. He graciously puts her at ease. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, here we go back to point number two. When God calls you to the adventures that he's going to give you, the mission that he is going to give you to live, he will always call you, brother and sister, with a distinct sense of his favor. If you're not hearing it, you got to fine-tune your mind because his favor is upon you. He loves you. He has chosen you for this mission. He has selected you for this adventure. He wants you to serve him in this unique and distinct way. It will always be to prepare people to receive Christ. Got to know his favor is upon you. Look at the third point. God's adventures focus on his son, Jesus Christ. And there's never an exception to this. Never. Every adventure that he will ever call you to will focus on Jesus. It will focus on Jesus Christ. If you're living life in a career or a pursuit that doesn't have Christ as your ultimate aim, you're not yet living God's adventure for you. Now, you got to make sure you heard that. If you're living out your life, and you've got a wonderful career, maybe you're just starting it, maybe you're 30 years into it, 
or you've got pursuits that you are giving your life to and you're putting a lot of energy into it, if it's not centrally about Christ, it didn't come from God. Because every one of his adventures is going to focus centrally on Jesus. And Gabriel is about to make that clear. Look at verse 3. And behold, I think it's verse 30, but you got to find it. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Is there any name more wonderful, more beautiful than Jesus? It's the Greek form of Joshua. Josh Brokes is here tonight. His his parents, Keith and Sharon, are here as well. They named him. I know they know what it means. It means Jehovah is salvation. Matthew, in his gospel, that's the first in the New Testament, makes it clear. Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus, for you, he will save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus means Yahweh, or the Greek version of it, Jehovah is salvation. The central reason that God was born a man was to bring salvation to believing sinners. It was about redemption. It was about buying people out of the slavery to sin, setting them free. But Gabriel's message goes on, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Most High is an Old Testament title of God, El Elyon. He will be called the Son of God, in other words. He will be born in humanity. He will be at the same time God above all. So Jesus is fully human. At the same time, he is fully God. Now, how can that be? Well, listen, if you have to know how everything that God does works, you're going to be very disappointed. There's things greater than we can understand. Somehow, Jesus is fully human. He cried. He wept. He slept. He bled. He got angry, and yet at the same time, without sin, the Holy One, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God overall. This is what Romans 9 says. To them belong the patriarchs, the Jewish people. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. He is God over everything. So listen, he's not the man upstairs. Christian brother and sister, obliterate that from your vocabulary. Do not demean Christ down to flippant, trite sayings. He's not the man upstairs. He's not your best friend. He is God. He is holy. He is your friend. He's also your Savior and your Lord and your Master. And he will be born to rule. The right to rule is Gabriel's description of Mary's baby, verse 32. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will reign forever and ever. Now there's one more point. God's adventures require faith and obedience. Now, God is calling you. He's calling me to get on Advent. He's getting on adventure, something that is about to happen. That adventure will always focus centrally on Jesus Christ. It is to prepare people for his return. But his, re his adventures require faith and obedience. Now, let me tell you briefly what that means before we read this in Scripture. The faithless and the unbelieving 
cannot join God's adventures. They cannot. This is for those who put their faith in Jesus and respond in obedience. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? So Gabriel says, you're going to have a son. He's going to be the savior, Jesus' salvation. He's going to be the son of the most high. He's going to rule over all. And she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, remember Zechariah last week. Zechariah doubted Gabriel and demanded a sign. She's not doing that. She's not doubting. She's not asking for a sign of confirmation. She simply cannot understand it. And there's things where you and I cannot understand either. But even in the midst of not understanding, listen, you can have faith. You can trust. You don't need to understand in order to trust. Now that smacks against some of us because I know there's people here that say, if you cannot prove it to me and if you cannot tell me how it works, then I cannot believe it. That is not true. That is not faith. Biblical faith trusts even when you can't explain it. <clears throat> the angel answered her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Just as the Spirit of God, you remember Genesis 1, was hovering over the face of the waters and it brought about creation by exerting his mighty power. Listen, the Spirit of God was going to overshadow this 12 to 14-year-old virgin Jewish girl betrothed to a man named Joseph. The Spirit is going to overshadow her. I don't know how. This is beyond me. But he's going to put a baby and it's going to be conceived in her womb. It's the same word, by the way, overshadowed. In Luke 9, 34, remember this? As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, Peter, James, and John, Mount Transfiguration, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So the Shekinah glory came around those four, Jesus and the three disciples. It's going to come around in the Spirit of God, Mary, and she's going to conceive. And he will be holy. You know what that means, right? It means that he's going to be the only human born without sin. He's holy from birth, not David. Even in my mother's womb, I was sinful. That's true for you. That's true for me. An angel's job was to be a message bearer for God. Gabriel's position in God's court in heaven was to be his servant at his beck and call. So what Gabriel says to Mary are actually God's words that he gave to him to go tell her. Now you got to get this, right? No angel spoke independently of God. They always bore God's message. They always brought God's message. So what Gabriel is saying are the words of God. So I want you to see in verse 36 just how compassionate God is with Mary, who cannot understand this. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth, we don't know if she's a cousin or an aunt, probably an aunt, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Do you know why God did this? Do you know why God told Gabriel to tell Mary this? Because God is able to help us believe. 
He gave proof that these words were true. He's helping Mary believe. This is how compassionate God is. Because what's happening to Mary is not only outside of her experience, it's outside of anybody's experience. God has never done this before. She's grown up hearing the stories of Israel, but nothing like this. God born as a human baby inside her body. So he graciously strengthens her faith. He tells her of the miracle of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Then Gabriel promises, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. Now all of that in verse 4 to get to this, or or, uh, point number 4 to get to this. You ready? Now listen to this. Look at me for just a moment. Is God asking you to do something too difficult for you? Too hard? Too beyond your comprehension? He can and he will strengthen your faith so that you can trust him. Now listen. And respond the way Mary does. Verse 34, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me, verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What an incredibly godly, humble young girl. She sees herself as a servant of the Lord. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. She believed that the Lord has the right to do what he wants. I'm your servant. You're the Lord. Kyrios, you're the master. You're the king. You're the God. And Gabriel promises her nothing will be impossible with God. So she says, let it be to me according to your word. What humility to do God's will more than her will. Now listen, God's adventures are for the humble, not those who are great in the eyes of the world. God's adventures come to us with a sense of his favor. When he gives you a calling, when he asks you to join him in his work, listen, he will speak his favor for you. You've got to hear it. It will be usually through his word, and the Spirit of God will reinforce it. And his adventures will focus you always, and never with an exception, always on his son, Jesus Christ. And finally, what we've learned from Mary, your response and my response must be one of trusting him and obeying. Amen? Friends, I'm believing you're called to an adventure. I don't say that spuriously i really truly believe that if you are a christian god's calling you to live on mission for him that's the adventure to prepare the world for his return remember those four things and let's ask his help